Hello, and welcome to the Victorian Gas Lamp, the podcast shining a warm light on the 19th century, and most notably, throughout the reign of Her Majesty Queen Victoria. Episode 18, Light My Fire. Around Tooley Street, in the heart of London, it was always a busy place. It was along the Thames and the home to many of the city's docks and warehouses. On Saturday, June the 22nd, 1861, the docks were bustling with men working to prepare for the shutdown for Sunday, the one day of the week where they didn't have to work. Among the many warehouses was Scoble's, filled with a huge array of products such as hemp, saltpetre, tallow, cotton, rice sugar and all sorts of spices. Next to Scoville's was Cotton's Warehouse and then Hayes and then Chamberlain's, all trading in similar products, especially that saltpetre and tallow. Now saltpetre is actually a component of gunpowder, but potassium nitrate, as it was properly called, was also an excellent preservative for meat. And tallow, yeah, that's rendered fat and it has all sorts of uses. And these days it's even being used in biofuels. Am I painting a nice little picture here? Because it was pretty much at the end of Saturday that a fire broke out in Scoville's warehouse. And yes, if you're thinking it quickly spread, it certainly did. A witness at the time reported, quote, From the opposite side of the river, it appeared like some volcano, throwing up its flames, reddening the sky, and illuminating all public buildings with the shade of an unnatural-looking autumnal sunset. The masts and flags and rigging of the ships in the river glowed as they were in a red heat. The water reflected the towering flames of the burning ships, Till the very Thames itself seemed on fire. End quote. But that witness was wrong on one point. It didn't just look like the river was on fire, because the Thames actually was on fire. Along with all that tallow, a huge quantity of oil had also poured out onto the river. And once the fire had taken hold, it spread out across the river, consuming the fuel there too. Obviously, at this point, the fire department stepped in. Well, okay, not just yet. Because the London Fire Department was nothing like what they have today. In fact, many businesses that were invested in manufacturing flammable products made sure to maintain their own local fire brigades. An example of this was a gentleman by the name of Mr. Hodges, who ran a local distillery. Obviously working with a product that would burn fast and cause untold damage to his business, he had two fire engines that were available and he rushed these to Tooley Street to aid in the fire. Another business, Price's Candles, rushed their fire equipment too. They're actually still a business that you can buy from their products to this day. So the local brigades were doing their best. And then the London Fire Engine Establishment arrived 
under the command of James Braidwood. Bringing their equipment was obviously a huge help. It even included a floating engine that was there on the Thames. Now, putting aside that much of the river was now on fire, the Thames is also tidal in nature. And naturally, during an event like this, it was pretty much at low tide and the water wasn't deep enough to operate the pumps. So, the river is on fire, the river pump can't work, and the rendered fat known as tallow is melting everywhere, including the streets. Yes, you heard me right, the streets of London were now on fire. The tallow flowed through the area, burning hot and on fire, and it was ankle deep. Now, things are bad for sure, and did I mention earlier that warehouses like Scovel's contained not only tallow, but also spices. So, when you have a massive fire, men are struggling to contain from the streets and all over the river, what you really don't need is stocks of pepper catching fire and creating billowing clouds of smoke that stung the eyes and blinded those brave firefighters. Arthur Munby was a traveller on a train 15 miles away, and from his seat he could see what he would later describe as, quote, a pyramid of red flame on the horizon, sending up a column of smoke that rose high in the air and then spread, end quote. By this time, eight warehouses were on fire, causing all sorts of chaos. Any attempt to extinguish the fire was given up in preference to simply trying to contain the fire from spreading further through the city. As night set in, the aforementioned Mr Hodges knew that a new steam-powered fire engine was being repaired on nearby Blackfriars Road and in desperation he went to see if it was working. And in a rare moment of good luck, during this event the engine was able to be used and so was rushed into service which helped the firefighters immensely. But that fire was burning at an incredible rate and still spreading. On the river, the flames had become so great that the water engine had to pull back lest it be lost to the flames. These flames were reportedly higher than the masts of the ship and it was a full 27 feet or 10 metres in the air. Now, also, do remember that London didn't have the lighting throughout the city that it has today. Like I spoke about way back in episode 1, street lighting was dim and only in parts of the city. And even by 1861, this hadn't changed much. So imagine living in a capital city with very little in the way of light, and a good portion of the heart of London burning so much that the streets and the Thames were on fire, along with floating, burning barges now drifting free. It'd be like something out of a Mad Max end of the world type movie. And the men of London were doing their best to save lives and their city. James Braidwood had been born in Edinburgh in 1800. He had helped found one of the world's first municipal fire brigades in the Scottish capital. 
His title in Edinburgh had been Master of Fire Engines. And how is that not one of the greatest titles in the world? At only 33, when he came to London, he had held that awesome position of Master of Fire Engines for nearly a decade before he moved. Incredibly talented in his field of endeavour, he later found himself the first director of the London Fire Engine Establishment. This would later become the London Fire Brigade. Coordinating the response to the already massive fire, he was naturally incredibly busy. Braywood and a number of his firefighters were just behind Tooley Street making plans for the best way to proceed when the warehouse with a huge stock of saltpetre nearby exploded. The wall blew outwards with massive force, sending burning brickwork flying, and Braywood and five other men were instantly buried. By all accounts, he had been well respected by his men, and they knew it was impossible to retrieve his body at this time, and so they carried on as he had trained them. By 11pm, houses on Tooley Street were catching on fire and there were genuinely legitimate concerns that a warehouse filled with several thousand barrels of tar would go up. Late into the night, the fire was described as being a vermilion colour and then changing into a bright blue as huge plumes of acrid white and black smoke bloomed out. Schooners nearby with barrows of oil, tallow and tar were moved out further into the river. The tugs caught fire and then burnt to the waterline, and the abandoned schooners now floated by, catching a light. Blazing barrels of tar had ended up floating along the river. 100 yards across, a quarter mile in length, it formed a complete wall of flame across the river, 20 feet high. And then the wind shifted, forcing the flames toward more of the tallow warehouses. At this point, it was 3 o'clock in the morning, a full 10 hours after the fire had started. And this was when the fires managed to contain the blaze to just one area of London. But they certainly weren't able to rest on any sort of laurels. A variety of products was still igniting among the burning buildings. Now, when I say they had the fire contained, that was true. But it had still burned a full 11 acres of inner city London. And the men, they kept fighting that fire, knowing that they couldn't stop, and it was during this later period that the sightseers naturally started turning up. Humans being humans, the streets began filling with people wanting to see what was happening, despite the danger. Local pubs in the area stayed open all night to take advantage of the extra business. While watching it all burn, you could get a beer, fruit, ginger beer, cakes, and maybe a coffee. Our resident witness Arthur further described the crowds as his train came in. Every head was out a window and at London Bridge and he found that, quote, the station yard, which was light as day, was crammed with people, railings, lampposts and every high spot alive with climbers, end quote. Omnibuses were taking people across the bridge at quadruple the usual rate. And aside from increasing their charges, they were also taking people all over their roofs as well, because everyone just wanted to see the fire. The omnibuses were licensed to take 14 people on the outside, but during this night they were taking double this number. 
London Bridge was packed. The opposite bank was crowded with onlookers and even on the river, in those places not on fire, little boats could be found with people all watching the incredible fire. Every building in the area that offered a viewpoint of some sort of the fire was crowded with people. By the early hours of the morning, the crowds were so thick that the police were struggling with crowd control and army regiments had to be brought in to help. The crowds continued swelling until it wasn't only London Bridge that was crowded. Nearby Waterloo and Westminster bridges became filled with onlookers trying to see what was happening. By the next morning, 200 police were still on duty. Walls were still falling and explosions were still occurring as new barrels caught fire. And firemen continued working in the area. But even four days later, on the 26th, a huge explosion occurred that took two hours to bring under control. And after two days of searching, the firemen had recovered the body of James Braidwood. His funeral was held on the 29th of June, even while the fire was still burning. So great was his impact on the city of London that his funeral cortege stretched 1.5 miles, about 2.5k, behind the hearse. All over the city, shops were closed with their blinds drawn out of respect. Every bell in London rang the funeral peal. The only exception to this honour is the Bell of St Paul's. These were only rung for the Lord Mayor or for the Royal Family. And even with a police escort, it took three hours to cover the four miles to the ceremony. At age 61, this legendary firefighter was laid to rest next to his stepson, who had also been a fireman and had died on duty six years earlier. Braidwood Street, just off Tooley Street, is named for him. James Braidwood is buried at the Abney Park Cemetery, Stoke Newington, not far from the Stoke Newington Fire Station. His grave lies on the path edge towards the south, and you can visit there today. Ten days after the explosion, owners were still trying to get their products out of the area, lest there be some other breakout fire that caused even more losses. While all the firefighters that could be found were being used to continue to try and contain the fire, locals from the area had been turning up not only to watch, but also to gather the huge blobs of fat that were floating along the Thames in large cakes. Reportedly, the fat could be found up to 12 miles downriver, and they did this for weeks, even risking their lives as they went out up to their necks in the filthy water to try and get the fat. The fat could be used in a huge range of foods and products as well as for cooking, and so naturally the warehouses decided that this was stealing and pursued legal action, and for months legal cases were being presented for people stealing the Thames fat cakes. The courts saw the fat as belonging to the original owners, although it became hard to tell who owned what as it floated down the river. 
And in an attempt to make some money out of the mess of the streets, the company sold the fat near their burnt buildings at a discounted rate as long as you took it then and there. Because, you know, capitalism. It was only a full three weeks after the fire had started that it was declared contained. In 2021 figures, the amount of damage caused in the Tooley Street fire equated to about £190 million. And aside from these statistics in terms of damage, the Tooley Street fire caused fundamental changes in fire control in London. Much of the city had been serviced by privately run fire departments, which were often funded by insurance companies. Why would the government want to take something over when it was being paid for by private enterprise? Well, because if my building was insured by company A, and yours wasn't, and you caught fire, you're going to burn even when my insurance company firemen stand there and watch until my building is under threat. So it was by 1865 that the old fire engine establishment was gone and put under the authority of the Metropolitan Board of Works and created the structure London has to this day. And to end on a lighter note after the catastrophic details of London burning, firstly, the only deaths of people during this fire were those of Braidwood and his brave men. No civilians were killed, well, reportedly anyway, and given the amount of damage caused during this fire, that alone is an incredible achievement and quite a miracle. And Now, I don't know if this occurred during the Tooley Street fire, but during this time, Her Majesty Queen Victoria's son, the Prince of Wales, and his friends enjoyed attending fires. Like everyone else, they loved to watch, but being rich kids, they had replica fire uniforms made and would run around fire scenes pretending to be firemen and getting in the way. Sounds like millennials to me, but okay, some things never change. But the funniest thing I read researching this podcast was that one time in London, there was an unusually bright and clear experience of the Northern Lights. And it must have been very bright indeed, because that night, 12 engines and 74 men were kept running around all night chasing for the fire that they thought was on the horizon. So, like I have said before about the city lighting, that will give you an idea of how dark London was. Also, it is kind of funny, and a perfect segue to leave a gas lamp on. I'll see you next episode. My website is victoriangaslamp.com. You can email me at victoriangaslamp at gmail.com with any suggestions you might have for future episodes. Happy to look into whatever might interest you as well. You are the ones listening on Twitter at Vic Gaslamp and my Instagram account is Victorian Gaslamp. Post there probably a couple of times a week and I do it as a bit of a, an extra aside to the podcast itself. Speaking of which, the next episode will be out in two weeks, so keep a lookout for that and I'll see you next time under the gas lamp. <laughs>